everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Greater European Talks. I'm Eylül Erval. In this episode, we are going to talk about the UK-Rwanda asylum deal. Today, we are joined by Thomas Woetz. Thank you, Thomas, for, for being here and for sharing your thoughts on this very critical issue. And before going through the questions, the asylum deal has been severely criticized for being cruel, for being expensive and being ineffective. And we also know that asylum seekers experience very high level of mental distress. It's really important to think how we got here. And we need to look at the shorter and the longer term picture of it. And especially the conservatives approach after they come into power, they are really honed in anti-immigration and anti-asylum sentiment. Let me ask you the first question. What's the UK-Rwanda deal? And do you think that it will work? Thank you for inviting me. It's a very topical issue and clearly highlighted the underlying issues that are very important to stress. In relation to the UK-Rwanda deal, basically it is on the 14th of April, after having secretly negotiated for a while, the United Kingdom and Rwanda signed a memorandum of understanding for the provision of an asylum partnership arrangement. As the name itself states, it is a memorandum of understanding, so not a treaty, which I do believe is very important to underline. Why? Because a memorandum of understanding is a non-binding document, whereas a treaty is a binding document under international law. So there is a very important difference between the two. Now, in this case, the memorandum has the objective of relocating asylum seekers from the United Kingdom to Rwanda for both asylum procedures as well as their integration in Rwanda. So in other words, it is not merely a processing arrangement, but refugees will be expected to remain in Rwanda. Under the memorandum, the United Kingdom will be expected to conduct a pre-transfer screening of asylum seekers, as individuals will need to be approved by Rwanda before they can be transferred. This screening will exclude, or rather likely exclude, a significant number of asylum seekers from transfer. We can think about, for example, asylum seekers with a family legally residing in the United Kingdom, seriously ill persons, LGBTQI asylum seekers, or, uh, for example, unaccompanied minors. Now, after transfer, which is run by the United Kingdom, it seems to me that Rwanda will then assume responsibility for the asylum procedure. The memorandum provides for a right to legal assistance and to appeal. However, I do not believe there is any information as to the timeframes for this procedure and the possibility to appeal. So a lot of questions still remain. The memorandum also provides for adequate accommodation for transferred asylum seekers and for freedom of movement in accordance with Rwandan laws and regulations. This last phrase, in accordance with Rwandan laws and regulations, is however not really defined any further. So more questions that arise. Asylum seekers that eventually are found to be refugees will remain in Rwanda and expected to integrate there. While the memorandum provides that those recognized as refugees will be treated in accordance with the 1951 Geneva Refugee Convention, the only really uh, reference or the only real more information we get here is that it relates to accommodation. Then asylum seekers with no protection needs will be returned to their country of residence. And if this is not possible, they will be regularized in Rwanda. If the UK would, for example, request to the return of a transferred person, Rwanda will have to take all reasonable steps in accordance with international human rights standards. This is the so-called exception clause that is included in the memorandum. It foresees legal challenges, but does not guarantee that a person will eventually return to the UK. 
So obviously, more questions that arise on what the word of this exception clause actually is. Then uh, lastly, the memorandum also foresees the issue of resettlement of the most vulnerable refugees living in Rwanda to the UK. However, there are no concrete numbers in this regard, but most analysts believe that this applies to Congolese refugees who have been living in makeshift camps in Rwanda for years already, or those who have specific health conditions and that would benefit from being transferred to the UK. Now, uh, on numbers, there are several articles which quote sources from the UK's Home Office who say that this number would be less than 15 total, so a really small number of people being resettled back to the United Kingdom. Very important to note is the fact that the operational time of the memorandum is currently five years, but there is a possibility of renewal. The second question you asked, will it work? I believe it is important to look at precedents to answer this question. And uh, there is actually really a relevant one. In fact, the deal that is now being concluded or the memorandum that has been concluded between the British government and Rwanda has in some ways already been attempted and failed. More specifically, uh, the Israeli government offshored several thousands of asylum seekers to Rwanda between 2014 and 2017 in a secretive scheme, which it abandoned when it emerged. Almost all ended back up in the hands of people smugglers and were subjected to slavery when traveling back to Europe. Then uh, even more so, I mean, questions obviously remain if sending asylum seekers to Rwanda will actually reduce the role of people traffickers, of human traffickers, who will continue to prey on persecuted people who have no legal route to the UK. And uh, some sources even claim that traffickers have now increased their prices while keeping their business ongoing. Considering all, all of the foregoing, I uh, highly doubt the possibility for this to become a fruitful cooperation. I agree with you because I also doubt about the success of this deal. But the thing is, you are coming to the UK by boat. And then you are welcomed by the threat of being sent to the east of Africa. So this is very controversial and it can't be really said enough how cruel it is. We will talk about all of this issue, but you just said that this asylum deal is aimed at reducing the number of the trafficking, human trafficking and smuggling. Do you think it will be a good argumentation and how the UK Home Secretary Priti Patel justifying this deal? So uh, you stated correctly uh, that uh, the UK Home Secretary Priti Patel is justifying this whole deal by saying, you know, it will streamline the UK's asylum system. It will lead to less human trafficking. She was even quoted as saying that the UK's asylum system has faced from a combination of real humanitarian crisis and evil people smugglers profiteering by exploiting the system for their own gains. However, you know, if we would look a bit more broadly, we could also look at uh, other arguments uh, that they've been using, for example, the Brexit argument and the issue of taking back control, uh, saying that they would take back control of their borders. But all in all, I do not really believe that these are you know, valid arguments. I believe human traffickers will still look at other modus operandi, will even use it as an argument for themselves to say, you know, we have bigger issues to go to the UK, so you need to pay us more. We're looking at alternative routes. And obviously, if people, they are fleeing from threat, they're fleeing they, and they don't have other options and, and they're in a very difficult situation, I think it will only help the human traffickers in their organization. And I don't think it will really deter them from going on with what they're doing right now. Yeah, indeed. The, the only way to prevent human trafficking 
is to provide safe routes for them because it's not an option. It's not a matter of decision because they they just have to take this risky journey. And at the end of the journey, they are deemed as illegal if they are claiming asylum. It is controversial policy and it seems that there is no other option for those people fleeing war or persecution. And also there are some other argumentation about this asylum deal is being cheaper than having those applications processed in the UK. Do you think is it really the case? I think obviously at this moment it is quite difficult to you know give a clear cut answer, but if you would look at other examples, other countries, I think the best example to look at is Australia, which is actually the country that has pioneered this whole concept of sending asylum seekers to other countries. Taking that into account, I think it's very hard to believe that this way of dealing with you know, asylum applications would be cost effective. So maybe a bit more context on the Australian example. Uh, Australia spends about 1 billion Australian dollars, which is approximately uh, 585 million pounds a year to house what is now thought to be a few hundred people. So to compare it, you know, a single asylum seeker, to send them to Papua New Guinea or Nauru, the countries that Australia has to deal with, costs about 3.4 Australian million dollars or 1.8 million pounds annually. So for only one person. And also uh, looking at the Australian example a bit further, I do not think, and I, I think other analysts will agree with me, that there is that this whole policy did not really deter migrants from trying to enter Australia irregularly. So then going back to the framework that is envisioned with the memorandum between the United Kingdom and Rwanda, I do not, in my own opinion, see how you know screening at arrival, then organizing the flights, then paying for the whole asylum process in Rwanda would in any way be cheaper than you know investing a sum in streamlining your own asylum procedure, embedding your own asylum procedure based on the concerns that have arisen, for example, in civil service or in academia, and you know trying to implement them in your existing framework. And there are also other concerns about complying with international law. So how do you want to say about it? I want to bring this to the question externalizing the asylum policy from the international human rights perspective. What do you want to say about this? Well, firstly, uh, I mean, you, you said it clearly. We could see this deal in a sort of new evolution in dealing with asylum and migration, which is the externalization of asylum and migration policy. Clear examples that I stated earlier with Israel, with Australia. But of course, there is a famous uh, EU-Turkey deal I think if you look at all these examples in this whole new dealing with migration from the externalization perspective, it is you know difficult to imagine how this would comply with international human rights law or international refugee law. We have to look to start really at the Geneva Refugee Convention of 1951, which entails a right to seek asylum. So looking at the K deal, you know, UK in this example has decided to stop granting asylum and uh, will only give it to those who have entered the country legally or fit within a specific category, as I stated earlier. So the LGBTQI people, the people, the unaccompanied minors. However, you know, this isn't always possible. I think if you're fleeing a life-threatening situation in your own country and you're fleeing to, in this example, for example, United Kingdom, or if you're fleeing in another example, 
to Australia. You know, for those people, it isn't always possible to apply in for asylum in a regular manner. Also, then, if you look at the aspect of offshoring asylum procedures, this creates really a, a sort of two-tiered refugee system that discriminates against one group based on you know their mode of arrival. Whilst according to the Geneva Convention, you know refugee status is based solely on you know the threat of persecution, the threat to serious harm. So I think in this new evolution we're seeing in migration policy, the whole externalization, maybe one could argue that it would fit with the letter, but anyhow, it wouldn't really fit with the spirit of the Geneva Refugee Convention. So I think it is a sort of worrying evolution, an evolution that we should keep track on, that we should have a, a closer look on. So I think it's also good that you know, we are also talking here and that other people are looking from it from a different lens. And um, it's also important, you know, that international human rights and international refugee law gets respected at all times. Yeah, you're right. And this makes us to discuss about the Rwanda point of view. What about Rwanda's capacity? Do you think Rwanda is capable of handling a refugee influx, especially given Rwanda's poor record of human rights? Yeah, I think that's really a, a good point to uh, highlight. For me, it is, of course, difficult to, you know, give a clear answer at this question on this moment. But, you know, if we just look at the situation, I do honestly believe that there are very slim chances that Rwanda, with the situation that we have right now, will be able to manage more refugees in a way that would be in accordance to their obligations under international human rights law and refugee law. But to give more facts, Rwanda is the most densely populated country on the African continent. It already hosts almost 130,000 refugees. As you said, it you know, Rwanda has a, a, not the best of a human rights record. In addition, also the local facilities for refugees are chronically underfunded. There have been even protests in the past against food ration cuts that resulted in police violence. So violence by refugees against the police. Taking this all into account, I do not see how, if you would add to this train by this new deal, how that would be manageable. And even if, you know, you take the argument by the United Kingdom and by Rwanda saying, you know, the United Kingdom government will take up all costs. I don't even believe even if they do that and even if they provide capacity building and everything that comes with it, I do not see how it will be manageable in the end. Yes, I want to ask about the international public response to this deal. We know from the recent news, Freedom from Torture, the British charity based in London, they have uh, legally challenged this deal. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen about this challenge, but it is really a good step uh, in terms of public criticism. What can you say about the UK immigration population and British or international response to this deal? I think overarching, there is this big sense of disbelief. There is also a lot of criticism coming from both inside UK as outside UK, so the international community. For example, at the UK, there, there has been a lot of internal criticism in the UK Home Office, a lot of sources saying that you know civil servants working there have branded the policy as being totally unethical. Some have apparently even asked if they can refuse to work on the scheme. So, you know, there's a lot of dissent from even inside the UK's home office. As you said, it, you know, there, there are a lot of legal challenges from civil societies, even the PCS union, so uh, the union which has members of the home office staff and of border force officers have brought up legal challenges. 
Uh, there are also other charities such as Detention Action, Care for Calais. But even, you know, on the political level, there there is also, logically also from the Labour Party, but even within the Conservative Party, you have influential MPs such as uh, former Brexit negotiator David Davis, who sent out an open letter which was published in uh, the UK newspaper The Times on April the 19th, so only five days after the deal was announced, with title, a very strong title, I would say, Hard-won Brexit freedoms shouldn't be abused to outsource asylum. So I think it's really, you know, straight to the point, no nonsense. And uh, even even clericals have, you know, gone against policy. So, uh, just to give you an example, the the most senior cleric of the Church of England, Archbishop Justice Justin Welby, called on the government to rethink its proposed scheme. So you know, even having people from those different backgrounds speak out against the government policy in such a straightforward manner. I don't think it is something that is seen uh, very often. Now, looking outside the UK, I think it's very important to see what the point of view is of you know this main uh, United Nations Refugee Agency, uh, the well-known UNHCR, which coordinates international refugee action. And they have expressed strong opposition and concerns about the plan, and they have even urged both countries to reconsider. And I'm sure that there is a lot of things going on in the background trying to you know change the point of view of both countries. And uh, big and influential NGOs such as Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and you know, many, many more have also you know described the plan as shockingly ill-conceived. They tend to highlight also the fact that sending people to a country with, as we said earlier, you know, the human rights record of Rwanda isn't really responsible. Actually, it's at the very height of uh, irresponsibility. And, you know, it's also emblematic for how the UK's government asylum policy has started to become inhumane over the last few years. So coming back to the beginning, as you see, a big sense of disbelief and a lot of criticism from a variety of people. Yeah, and in return, uh, what can Rwanda get from this deal is having a public image of building a good relationship with European countries such as the UK. Uh, but it's not worth of humans' lives because they are put in danger more, in my opinion. Thank you, Thomas. It was very insightful conversation with you. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. And uh, we can you know, hopefully find a more sustainable, a better and a more inclusive solution that works for everyone, even those that need it the most. In this case, those that are fleeing from persecution and are fleeing from war and that have a lot of problems you know, going on with their lives. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you would like to join one of our future episodes, please email us at podcast at institutegratayurope.com.